Hello, everyone. Welcome to Personalization Outbreak Podcast number 16. Our guest today, Nick Modi, comes directly from Wall Street to discuss the impact the pandemic has had, not only in the consumer packaged goods industry, but also in higher education that must quickly adopt a consumer-centric approach. Nick is a managing director at RBC Capital Markets, where he has responsibility for coverage of beverage, household personal care, in tobacco industries, the companies under Nick's coverage total over $1 trillion in combined market value. Nick has consistently been ranked as one of the top analysts across the consumer space by Institutional Investors All-Star Analyst Survey. Now, as you should all know by now, GLLG will be presenting a live three-day virtual summit on October 28th, 29th, and 30th. This summit will be hosted by the College of Arts and Sciences at Fairfield University and powered by Lightspeed VT Studios in Las Vegas, Nevada. Now, Nick will be one of the 35 plus featured speakers at the summit. So check it out. Register for free. Thanks to our sponsors at 2020summit.ageofpersonalization.com. Let's get started. You are listening to Personalization Outbreak, a podcast about the collapse of traditional corporate standards in today's more personalized world. I'm Glenn Yopis. I'm a leadership strategist, author, contributor to Forbes, and founder of the Leadership in the Age of Personalization movement. On this show, I'm interviewing executives across multiple sectors to find out how the balance between standardization and personalization can exist. Nick. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Glenn. I appreciate it. Well, come on, Nick. It's always an honor, and I appreciate your time. You know, Nick, your thought leadership, your thought leadership at the summit last year, um, that declaration you made, I mean, you were ahead of your time. And so let me, if I could just remind you of that declaration uh, back in October of 2019, and you said, the future is here. I can't stress this enough. If your organization is not prepared for personalization today, think about what the state of your organization will be like five years from now. It's time to start making some near-term sacrifices to make sure you're prepared for the future. Now, Nick, <laughs> what we didn't expect is for COVID and social unrest to actually accelerate all the messages yeah. that you talked about and the need for people to lead in today's age of personalization. So how prepared are organizations and their leaders for today's more personalized world? Well, uh, certainly they're trying to catch up. The problem is things are moving so fast as they try to recalibrate, they're still behind. You know, I rarely see, and I cover a lot of very large multinational companies and corporations and they are catching up, but they're still behind the curve. The reality is that you have a lot of legacy infrastructure that basically makes it easy to operate in a world of standardization, when in reality, we are seeing um, outcomes that are very personal in nature. Just think about how COVID-19 impacts varying demographics differently, or the varying lifestyles people carry in terms of 
Do they have elderly people in the home? Do they have school-aged children? Are their kids going to college? Um, healthcare, different people are impacted differently. Different ethnicities are, different, are impacted differently. So this is all, you know, kind of what I was talking about uh, way back when we did the, uh, the last time I was with you and your, and your, and your group. So, you know, I, I just, I'm not seeing companies really get ahead of where the situation is. I think they're still lagging, but they're catching up. So can you just touch on, because I mean, I think most people understood this, but I'd like for you to go a little bit deeper when you said legacy infrastructure. I mean, that to me uh, almost sounds like people are still indelibly steeped in standardization, but can you break that down for us, please? Yeah, like I'll, I'll just give you a corollary before I get into the actual discussion. Um, I, I married a, um, a young woman from South Africa. We had our wedding in South Africa. Now here, this was in the early 2000s, and I'm saying I'm from, you know, the advanced U.S. of A., and I'm going to Zambia and Swaziland to, to have my wedding. And I'm in my brother-in-law's car, and, he, and, and I start, all of a sudden I start hearing a phone call come into the car. I go, what is going on here? It was simply Bluetooth. Okay, but I had not been introduced to it in 2003 in the U.S. of A. <laughs> they didn't have a legacy infrastructure of wired telecom. And so they leapfrogged and they went right to wireless. Okay. Yep. And the reality is when you look at a lot of these companies, many of the companies I follow are on average 70 to 80 years old. Hmm. They've been built. They were built during world war two. Right. And they have these infrastructures in place and many times to change the way you do business in a meaningful way, you have to invest. You have to take certain profit setbacks. And yeah. I'm not sure many of these companies were bold enough to make those choices and it compounded over the years. And yeah. so now we find ourselves in a situation where you have very basic standardized HR processes, very basic and standardized ways to engage with your employees. You have very basic and standardized IT infrastructure. So the communication flow is not as seamless and not as dynamic. Now, again, companies are making investments to change that, but it takes time and it takes a lot of money. So, you know, Nick, as you were talking, it, it, uh, it made me realize just um, what's causing uh, the, the, the further polarization of standardization and personalization. And you basically just said it, it takes time, it takes money. Actually, it requires organizations to place certain strategic bets that don't always have the uh, predictive um, analytics to support it. And so here we are at a time where standardization and personalization, uh, they're the polarity has, I believe, reached an all-time high, and we're seeing in real time just the fragility of our systems in that, you know, as all this personalization is really challenging standardization, that standardization is making decisions almost in the extreme to neutralize that, those forces of personalization. Have you seen that play out? Yeah, I mean... It you know, I, I would take this even at a higher level. We're seeing bifurcation happen everywhere. Mm. Bifurcation of incomes, bifurcation of political views, bifurcation of social values, right? 
Um, so this is not a corporate thing or an analyst thing. This is a societal thing. Um, and and it's, it's actually quite um, scary when you think about, like, my children. You know, if incomes, for instance, or in political use, for instance, continue to bifurcate, and you have two very, very rigid groups, that creates conflict. That creates an unsafe society. Let me give you an example. Johannesburg, again, I'll use that as an example because it's uh, you know, near and dear to my heart now that I'm married to a South African. Johannesburg has very high crime, but it has very wealthy people and very poor people. The middle class essentially does not exist. And so when you think about you know, this polarization that's happening right now, I think it's leading to a very dangerous area. And the reality is we cannot treat employees and civilians in a mass way like we used to. We have affinity groups. We have diversification. I mean, we have all the things, Glenn, that you and I have been talking about for years. Yet our communication strategies have not adjusted to consider all these varying groups and their different interests uh, and different motivations. So, Nick, does this take us to convergence? I mean, we have talked about this recently that sectors such as healthcare, corporate America, and higher education, I mean, I mean, can we still view them as verticals? It seems to me that they're horizontals. In other words, the interconnectedness of these sectors will really determine the short and long-term success of all of these players. I mean, where's this headed? I mean, can we go at it alone or... I mean, or, or, or we have, or have, have we reached a point where we've exposed um, uh, leadership behaviors that have been so insular, almost so secretive to now recognizing that we all need each other to be successful again? Absolutely. Everything is connected. I mean, and I, I'm very sensitive to this point because I'm an analyst. My job is to connect disparate insights hmm. into one conclusion. That's my job. So maybe I'm a little bit more in tune because I'm trained that way than the average person, okay? And it took 20 years to get to this point, right? Mm. The reality is, let's think about what this pandemic is doing to all those three bodies that you discussed, right? We, we discussed what education, healthcare, and what was the last one? Corporate, Corporate America. America. Okay, so let's think about it. Pandemic hits, <clears throat> okay? People start getting sick. We shut down the economy. Then we start worrying about the education system. Look what's happening right now. I mean, I think there was a study that was done that by 2027, I believe, or somewhere a few years down the line, 50% of US academic institutions would be in bankruptcy. Think about what this pandemic has done. So now all of a sudden healthcare is not separate from education, right? Um, and then you think about what happened in corporate America where people literally have not been able to go to work, okay? And businesses are shutting down. And we'll, many of them will be shut down forever. So all of this stuff is interconnected, interrelated. I would argue a lot of the issues we have in our country is that part of our education system uh, needs to be evolved. We need to evolve our education system for today's world, right? When I look at my kids' curriculum, for instance, in their uh, you know, seventh, eighth grade and, and fifth grade curricula, it is the same curriculum I learned. Hmm. The world has changed since I was that young. 
mainly I don't have any hair uh, anymore. <laughs> but the world has changed dramatically. The skill sets they need today are very different than the skill sets I needed when I was young. So, but Nick, don't, wouldn't you say that along the same lines that leaders uh, who have uh, in their organizations, like you said, that you work with uh, organizations that are 70, 80 years old, are there actually, but are there leaders prepared for what's going on now? I mean, the old playbook doesn't apply, does it? No. And, and, uh, and that's been my big uh, thrust over the last several years is making that point that companies are not uh, ready, battle ready for the future. Some are. Let's be very clear. Some are. Most aren't. And my point as an analyst, right, the analyst community often gets viewed as, look, we're these, you know, evil people that are always putting pressures on these big publicly traded companies because we want near-term profit. And, and that is not true. I mean, what an analyst's true job is to understand the current value of future cash flows, not today's cash flow yeah. or the next three months cash flow. And so I want to make it very clear to everyone listening that the analyst's focus is on sustainability of growth. And if you think about corporate behavior and executive behavior and board behavior, more often than not, it is to optimize the near term than to actually create long-term value. And now I'm sure I'll get debated on that point by many, but just look at the behavior. You can see it in stock price behavior. You can see it, see it in profitability behavior. You can see it in the numbers. The numbers don't lie. So Nick, on the, go ahead, Nick, go ahead. I was just gonna say, uh, you know, you, you, I wanna kind of bring this current point to the, the last one that you just mentioned about education. Uh, when you're looking at, for example, you know, your, your kids' curriculum, and you're like, but that was mine. Um, it didn't stop you. Um, you had a very standardized education like both of us did in terms of kind of just getting the, the, the regular routine, right? Um, yeah. Yet, you've distinguished yourself. And I remember just from, from reading and, and watching you both at the summit and outside of the summit, you know, one of the things that distinguishes you that's, a, uh, that's really fascinating, what I love most about you is that you're when you're talking about the future, when you're talking about the business sector in particular, right? Um, what's fascinating for me as an outsider to business is that you've got your tentacles all over the place, not just in say corporate communications and the finance pages. And so I'm thinking, what is the Nick uh, Modi sort of educational system? Where do you go? What, what, what do you do to augment the business papers, the finance papers, in order for you to have that pulse that you talk about? Because I'm thinking that, that if we can structurally look at some of the ways that you got beyond your standardized education, right, we might be able to understand what we could do to education today. Just a thought. What, yeah, that's what do you do great. the financial time? That's a, that's a great question because, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, uh, I'll, I'll admit I was not a very good student. Um, I was always a very kind of average student, um, even through college. I think that actually helped me. Why did it help me? It didn't give me such a rigid structure in which my mind operated, right? I wasn't very textbook connected. What I did is I paid attention to the world. I talked to a lot of people. I, and I guess maybe it's just my personality, but I love to learn from others. Um, and I believe that you can learn something from anybody. And so what I did is I tried to extract as much as I possibly could from everyone I interacted with, from my roommates, 
to my friends, to my professors, to I network like crazy. That's how I got my job. I didn't get my job because my grades were, were that great. Um, and, and, and this is a lesson I'm trying to bestow onto my children because think about today, the, the rich education you can get literally by going on YouTube. I mean, it's incredible what you can learn. You know, in fact, I'm inspired at, a, at 44 years old and I want to inspire others that you can literally learn anything that you want to learn by yourself on your time. I mean, that is the beauty of what has happened with content. So that, that's kind of my explanation. That was my school. I like it. So if, if, if it's not about content, then from, from your future vision, when you're looking at education, and I, I, I don't mean to say this in a pejorative way, right, for educators, as me being one, but as a product, right, um, what is it? Um, what is it that we're going to deliver now? What is it that we deliver if it's not content? Because if content is ubiquitous, then higher ed needs a new role. Uh, from your perspective, what is that role? Yeah, I, I think to me, it's, it's really about the practitioner too, right? Okay. Uh, some of the best professors I had is, as, as I was going through business school were the, the practitioners that were able to layer on the theory to help support the practitioner point, right? So this is how it works in real life. This is a real life project. I remember the best thing I ever did for my finance you know, future was I took a Harvard case study class in college. Right. So it was a Harvard case study class at Rutgers. <laughs> and basically it was the case study approach. So it would be all these kind of historical business cases that are already in the books. We already have the evidence, but they wouldn't give you the answer. It would be like, OK, this is the situation. And we as young students didn't know that this stuff already happened. Right. Yeah. So you're going through the process and then you realize, wow, this actually happened. And you see how it unfolded. And boy, doesn't that add a lot of context to the theory? Right. And so to me, that's I think that's where education needs to to move to create this more personalized viewpoint um, is how do we put the the theory and apply it to the practice? Scott, do you want to react to that? <laughs> <laughs> Just only with right on, man. That's I mean, that's exactly it. You know, we, we've talked about this a little bit over the summer, Glenn and I, just about, you know, the words like curation, uh, the role yeah. of, of the educators now a curator as opposed to a content provider, um, a, a coach, uh, somebody to essentially um, help inspire questions and questioning and critical consciousness. So uh, uh, just I guess the short way to say that is right on, man. <laughs> well, it, God, if I were to if I were to go back and redo my education. Yeah, what would you do? I would do cultural anthropology and history. Yes. 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 No, yes. And, and I'll tell you why, because I, I, I believe, you know, and I've been studying a lot of kind of not pure cultural anthropology, but my job is I'm a consumer analyst. Yeah. I need to understand how people behave and why they behave the way they behave. That is really my job. So if you think about it, I'm kind of trying to act like a cultural anthropologist on Wall Street. Effectively. Yeah. Okay. So I need to understand the true motivations, but that transcends finance. That, right. that goes to the societal level. Like, why, why do Democrats and Republicans behave the, the way they behave? Why is it so polarized, right? Why are incomes bifurcating? I mean, these questions, I think, when you understand society and the true motivations of why people make choices, I, I think you can make a lot of sense out of the world, Well, right? Well. So, so to me, it's really about understanding the root cause. What is the root cause of the standardization versus personalization? What is the root cause of what I would characterize as a not great response to this pandemic, 
Like what is, and those are the things that fascinate me the most. So what is the root cause, Nick? What's the root cause and why, why does this tension exist between standardization and personalization? Yeah, I, I think it has something to do, and I'm not a cultural anthropologist, so I'll, I'll defer to Scott for some real answers, but my, my point of view, um, I think it's the ubiquity of information and the general lack of intensity to fact check and cross check and verify, right? So you're getting hit with all this stimuli and you, you may not have the time or the motivation to understand what is real and what is not because everything can be spun in a certain way. I mean, heck, I'm a Wall Street analyst. I can tell you that firsthand. I try to call it like I see it, but everything can get spun by a management team, by a CEO, by a board, yeah. by a treasurer. I think that's the problem is that there is no more common ground in terms of, um, you know, information. Everything is an opinion, right? And sometimes opinions can be, can be uh, you know, spun. And, and that's the problem we have today. I'll tell you, you know, it's funny. People ask me like, well, well what news sources do you watch? Um, and, you know, again, thankfully, I, I married this incredible woman who introduced me to BBC, right? Because she, she did her university in London. That's news, man. Those are facts. Yeah. yeah. Even Al Jazeera. It sounds yeah, like kidding, right? But so it's you, very factual. You know, it's interesting, Nick. It, it, <clears throat> you know, we've talked about um, how the business, it's moving from the business defining the individual to the individual defining the business. And, you know, you've heard us and we've discussed the importance of do you see me? Do you know me? Um, I think the tension exists because the individuals who have an opinion on what they believe is what they believe is the truth. No one's paying attention to their truth. It's as if the truth is being made for them. Did that click? Yeah, I, I, think, that's part of, I think that's part of it, too. I think that's part of it, too. I think they feel like they're not being heard. Um, I, I think that's a fair point. And that's, that comes down to standardization, right? Standardized politics, standardized education, standardized HR policies, right? This is the problem. We're on we're a slippery slope right now. So this goes back to we're witnessing the fragility of our systems and our strategies and our leaders in real time. I mean, I think we've said in this uh, in the last five minutes just how standardization has finally been exposed. So, Nick, what specifically do you think has been exposed and uh, what are the short and long term financial consequences? Well, I, I think our our. We're, we're seeing, you know, I guess maybe because today is, I've been watching things about higher education, where we're seeing the fragility of our higher education system and the value equation of an education. The inflation in education versus the inflation of wages and the fact that education hasn't really changed. And I saw this article that Google is now creating a certification program to give people skills for today's jobs you don't need to go to college to get a high paying job in solar or wind or, you know, um, healthcare. Um, so, you know, we're, we're going to see disruption happen. I think I've always said like how, yeah, the, the education system is ripe for disruption. We still need higher education. We just need to change the way we do it. 
and we need to make it much more, we need, need to make the value equation much more attractive. Well, and you could say, right? and you I, could I, say I, I like to get it to. Go ahead, Nick. Yeah, no, I, I, I was going to say, like, one of the interesting things as being a consumer products analyst is, you know, I'm looking at everyday products that we have in our homes. Okay. Now, what incense a consumer to buy Tide at 50%, 60% premium to a private label or even 100% premium? Yeah. It's because it's just better. There's chemicals in it that actually clean better. And the advertising <laughs> is very ubiquitous, right? That's a value equation. Where's education's value equation? Right? If prices have gone up, but the value has not moved as evidenced by the fact uh, wages have not risen to the same degree, then we know that there's a value equation discrepancy. So as a consumer products analyst, I would look at that and say, oh, well, this company's in trouble. They're raising their prices and they haven't made any changes to their product. That, that's going to lead to market share erosion and ultimately some pretty bad financial stress. You know, they make the gonna, same argument. Go ahead. Go. Keep going. No, that, that's, that's, that, that, you can say <laughs> make the same argument for, for education right now. Yeah. Well, you, you know what, Scott? I know you, you want to jump in, but, you know, Nick, I, I'd love to ask you to think about this as we get ready for the summit in October. And, may, and, and is what is the new value equation. Here's why I'm asking. You know, in healthcare, what have we seen? We've seen an industry that has operated like a cottage industry since its inception. And now they're wanting to move from volume-based, you know, how many patients can you see and get reimbursed for, for just seeing as many patients as you can, to now one of value where the reimbursement um, from payers is going to come by you making sure that the patient doesn't come back to you, that you're, you're putting them on a plan of better value of care. But when you look at both sides of those two, uh, 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 of those two areas, volume versus value, it's still driven by the physician first. In other words, they say they want to move to value-based care, but if they really do, it should start with the patient first. And what I'm hearing you say, it's very clear, is that the value, the value equation needs to move to the individual. So higher ed needs to change its value equation to be less about what they think the theories are that will make them, that will prepare their students to better understanding their students to understand what they need to be successful, meaning what kind of curriculum the way that curriculum's delivered, that the totality of the learning experience. We're seeing that right now in healthcare play out as frontline workers are the heroes because they've learned the new dimensions of personalized care. They've learned that uh, physicians have learned that as much as they didn't think that telehealth was going to be a way to deliver health, uh, that's become the most personalized tool available now. And it's yeah. doing incredibly well. In fact, I thought about you because I remember at the summit, you talked about how certain things had a longer adoption cycle. Telehealth, boom, been adopted in, in weeks, let alone yeah. months. And so what do you think that value equation is going to be for people in corporate America? I mean, it would seem to me that they have to look at the consumer first. 
I mean, I've got to believe that the reason that Ty keeps investing in that brand is they, they know that their consumer has experienced something special from those ingredients. But hey, if you talk to a retailer, they'll tell you that their private labels are just as good or better because brands have seen margin squeeze and they need to look for another avenue for volume. So help us unpack this a little bit, Nick, or what are your reactions yeah. to what I've shared? Well, I, I totally agree with you. And if you go back to the last time we were together, the point I try to make to everyone in the room was your, your, your employee is a consumer. Right. And your consumer is getting exposed to so many areas of personalization in everything they do. Okay. Because data now is becoming a tool to create personalization at mass. 3D printing is allowing things to be created at a very rudimentary level for you. Okay. Wearables are giving doctors valuable information on your personal health that they can make very precise uh, instructions on how to take care of yourself. But that person, that patient, is an employee. So if you're that employee and you're seeing all this kind of personalization around you and you're going to a, sta a standard corporation with standard practices, the value equation for that employee gets smaller and smaller and mm. smaller and smaller. That makes it harder and harder to retain the best people. And ultimately, that is a slippery slope no one wants to get on. And we're seeing it today. Think about how hard it has been, even for basic jobs, to find high-quality employees. You know, Nick, you bring something out. I mean, is the, is the value equation, I would think they, need, they should be one of the same, but in uh, just having a little whiteboard session here, should the value equation for the organization, should, should that be the same as the individual? Um, yeah, pretty much. Right. Or a collection of all the individuals that are in the organization. It could be a pluralistic vision that actually encompasses the individual vision of the employees themselves, of the, the people who make up the organization. One thing that gets me a lot is that I, I find myself in, in a lot of institutions and organizations where um, when I see us working together and banging our heads against the wall, trying to, to meet a new challenge or to, to create a new opportunity, um, a lot of times what I see is that the way that we talk, and the way that we're planning, and even the way that we're creating it, right? We're thinking as the institution, which is the worst thing we could ever have done for that institution. The institution is a collection of individuals that are aligned by a mission that when they can work and talk and connect to each other in unique ways, especially in these ways that we need in the 21st century that were not there before, right? That's the power of an institution that's going to adapt and not because there was a rule that said, now we're going to adapt, everybody let's adapt together. It's because that's just how it flows. So I'm just saying, um, I think when we talk about the, the mission of the institution, we have to remember that our employees need to not just hear that they are the institution and that they are running the ship, but they actually have to have opportunities to do exactly that. And that means controlling their destiny within the institution and controlling the institution's vision uh, into the future. Let, let me give you a really crystal example from the corporate world and why this, is, this topic is relevant for almost any discussion, okay? I'm going to take Campbell Soup, okay? The soup category has been declining for, you know, a lot of years. And 
prior to the current CEO, there was a management team and, you know, soup was just viewed as a low cost food, um, you know, cheap, easy meal to make, right? New CEO comes in and says, guys, we're not going to try to be category centric. Let's be consumer centric. What do the consumers want out of our product? And what they basically aligned around was that our soup is basically the base to almost any quick scratch cooked meal at home. Very, I mean, it, just think about like nothing has changed except just the, the way you think about it because you're now thinking about it from the consumer standpoint. So all of a sudden Campbell's goes from a high sodium, salty based, you know, cheap food to a convenient meal solutions business like that, just by a different perspective. And I can give you multiple examples of other companies that have done similar types of things. But when you take a consumer centric approach, good things happen. And this is a mass company. This is not, you know, right. it's not like they're individualizing soups for, for Scott or Nick or Glenn. They're just understanding generally from a cultural anthropology standpoint, what the consumer actually wants. They want to make meals quickly at home at a low cost. And this is a solution for that. So how does this, if I may, uh, maybe help make some sense out of this. I thought consumer, consumer uh, packaged goods companies uh, we're always about the consumer. And now I'm hearing from you that, well, they, I guess they did in writing, but they didn't realize that they were actually trying to standardize consumer behavior rather than give them the freedom to influence new ways of delivering the same product. Well, just think about it, right? A lot of these companies, like I said, are very old. They were the only game in town for many, 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 many years. They became big. They became bloated. They became lazy. They lost sense of the value equation. They lost sight of the consumer. And they focused on their financials. Okay? This happens. It is up to observers and new blood to come in and say, wait a second, we can't keep on doing things the same way. We are not a cheap meal, salty high sodium solution. We are a part of the everyday meal because consumers want to cook fast meals at home because they don't have time and they don't want to go out to eat because it's too expensive. So it happens to every organization. We are see what happened to Campbell's a couple of years ago is effectively what we're seeing in many parts of the healthcare industry and certainly post-secondary education. And it is getting disrupted. When you get fat and happy, to use that term, it leaves the window open for disruption. Think about Kmart and Walmart, and then think about Amazon, Yeah. right? Think about Hilton Hotels and Airbnb. Think about just all these situations where companies um, neglected to see what the consumer really wanted, right? The consumer didn't necessarily want to just go to a standard hotel. They wanted to pick a place, a home, wherever they wanted it. They were willing to pay higher number of dollars for something on the beach. Sometimes they just wanted something in the city because they wanted to explore a city in a different country. You know, Airbnb figured out that consumers wanted to be more personalized in how they enjoyed their leisure time. Guys, it's all connected. Every story is the same. It's just a different manifestation. So well put. So how do we, 
Um, so what needs to happen for this convergence? Uh, how, do, how do we operationalize this convergence? I mean, let, let me just throw something out for you to react to, Nick. So yeah. we know that uh, everybody's in the business of healthcare, right? We know that. We talked about that at last year's summit. Right. Playing out today more than ever before. What do I mean? Large employers, their, their benefit packages don't include every service for every uh, coverage for every chronic disease. So what are large employers doing? They're partnering with large healthcare systems that specialize in certain chronic disease states because more and more of the large employers' employees are susceptible to chronic disease states as more and more employees either age or becoming more culturally diverse. And those are the ones that are more susceptible to these disease states. So large employers know that they're in the business of healthcare, but it only it's that relationship seems to stop by knowing, oh, I have a large uh, healthcare system partnership. So if we have certain employees that have cancer, for example, we know how to provide them that care. But shouldn't it? Con why does it stop there? I mean, it's clear that healthcare knows a thing or two about personalization, even though they haven't taken it all the way through to the end. We obviously know that that large corporations need to understand more about personalization. How do we get these industries? This is my point, Nick. How do we get these industries that people would think they have no business dealing with each other? How do we help push that convergence? It needs to go beyond surface level. I, I honestly, Glenn, I think the solution is very simple. It's just an acknowledgement that these things are related. It's that simple. Just acknowledging the fact that these things are related then will create unique partnerships and innovations and collaborations that I think can help solve some of these more discrete issues that you're talking about. But Nick, I think that there is an acknowledgement. I just, again, we're just having a discussion. I yeah. just don't see much. I don't see the actions going deeper. It's as if they're almost hidden in the C-suite and they're yeah. you know, working with some large consultancy no disrespect, who has equally been affected by standardized thinking. My whole point is in the opportunity to find balance between standardization and personalization, it goes back to the 70-year-old philosophies and thinking that is dictating the convergence, and I'm concerned about that. I, I am too, and that's why I say these slippery slopes are places a lot of these organizations don't want to be on. Think about this. If, if you were struggling as a corporation. I mean, you're, you're getting back to your last line. You're saying, my God, what do I do? What does that organization typically do? Okay. One of the things, I mean, they make cut costs and they do all that stuff. But one of the things they always do is they survey the employees. Hmm. Now, the mechanisms are there to get the feedback, to make the right choices. The mechanisms exist. The motivations may not exist because it costs money and their profit setbacks, and there's all other host of, you know, why not just kick, a, kick the can down the line? Remember, Glenn, well, one of the charts I shared at the, at the last summit we were at is that CEO tenure has truncated by 30% over the last two decades. Right. That's a big problem. That's a big problem because if I'm, if I'm only going to be in my seat four or five years or six years and I have activists and maybe I lose my job earlier because I'm not delivering shareholder value, then – why do I want to take on this mess? Let the next guy do it. 
Yeah, but you know, you talk. Can I just step in for one second? I'm thinking, Glenn, um, like motivation, right? Nick, you just said motivation. That's where we're at. I think we're really just again, as we're supposed to do, we're just talking about sort of this 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 opposition of personalization and standardization, right, as a framework. And I think when we're talking about standardization, the motivation is specifically, um, you know, CYA. It's uh, throw money at it because if we throw money at it, that means we did our rightful duty of seeing it and doing something. But what we did was we outsourced it. And if there's a problem with this, well, maybe next time we'll get a better vendor, a better supplier. The difference for me is that the motiv motivation that comes with a personalization uh, framework, right, is that what we're looking for is what you talked about earlier, Nick, with this, the motivation is sustainability of growth. But the sustainability of growth, in this case, in this personalization phase, is all about doing that via the individual, whether that's the people making your widgets or buying your widgets. And so right. I think when we get to motivation, it's a very important thing to step back. I think Glenn, you mentioned, but yeah, but it's just gonna be surface level because that's all it has to be in standardization. We did what we could and we threw a million dollars to this firm and so we didn't get the results we wanted, but you know what, we're working on it and we hear you. That's, yeah. that's 20th century. 21st century is, well, now we're gonna actually have to do something about it. Uh, Black Lives Matter, for example, right? Um, we're to a point now we're talking about it and protest is not, that's not it. That's just, yeah. we're, we're doing that to get somewhere else. There's a whole nother motivation that I think is happening. That's an excellent point, Scott. And if you think about this whole post-secondary education discussion we're having about education, you know, think about all the backlash that's happening today that maybe not, may not have happened 10 years ago with students now going online and tuition and the debate over tuitions and, and uh, on campus housing, there's real backlash. I'm not sure that would have happened. And the backlash is now much more public because of social media. So, I, you know, the ubiquity of information is bad to some degree, right? Because sometimes you can't cross check what's real and what's not. But at the same token, the ubiquity of information is causing the disruption that is so required and necessary. And the ubiquity is truth and the simplicity is illusion, fair and right. simple. That's right? it. And so the, the deal is illusions look really great. But when you try to walk in the door of that fake storefront, you open it up to find there's literally and never, never was anything there. Right. You know what? Um, as, I, as you mentioned, if I could stay, take a step back. And Scott, thanks for that. You always make us think <laughs> um, at a different level. You said we have the mechanisms, but maybe not so much the motivations. Could you say that uh, motivations are equal to capacity? I mean, is it the willingness or is it the capacity to actually act? I think it's the willingness. I think, you know, as I can give you the example in the Campbell Soup situation, right? That was just coming up with the perspective based on the feedback they got from the consumer standpoint, and then just making the changes. There was no, I mean, they had to spend money to do it and all this kind of stuff, but it was just the idea and the insight that drove. That's why I say data is liquid gold now. Yeah, it right? is. The more data we have and the way you can, pro if you can process it effectively, I mean, I live this every day as an analyst. If you could process data effectively, then that changes everything. That changes the way you look at things. 
that changes the way you make decisions, that makes, that changes the way you think about the future. Yeah. So data, and we're getting, collecting data from all different angles, right? Whether it be wearables or data online or uh, polls or whatever, whatever. I mean, there's data everywhere. One, you know, structured and not structured. One thing I would always tell a student doing an independent research project at any level is um, be careful not having an exact or a specific uh, learning goal or outcome in mind because what you'll end up doing, for example, if it's the anthropologist, unless you have an idea in mind about what you're going to do in that village for the next two years to try to think about a solution, what you're going to do is you're going to just pick up every single thing that you might think be relevant to something else, and then you'll just keep gathering it and gathering it, and then you're going to have this big pile that you really can't do anything with, even if you have supercomputers. And the most important thing for me is when we're that carefree about the data that we're collecting and putting into the pile to be thinking about in some way later, um, what we're not really recognizing is that the way that we collect that data and even the ways that we use that data or analyze that data are entrenched in standardization in ways that we haven't even grappled with yet. Algorithms are us. We taught yeah. the algorithms to be racist. Right. We right. taught the algorithms right to be exclusionist. We taught the, the, the algorithms to, to not distribute. Um, wealth to a middle class, for example, right? And so my, my biggest concern is that, 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 that we essentially do the substitution theory that Glenn talks about as opposed to really truly inventing when we're moving into this high data age. Um, I think it's important. I think we have a lot of hope in data and, and supercomputing, but um, let's remember who made that and that's right. of us. And so it contains all of the culture that's still within us. And that brings up another point about education. Why are we okay. teaching? Why is my 13-year-old not learning how to process data or yeah. how to manage different data sets or how to think about the union of different data sets? Why is he not learning that? He's not learning. Right. I'm teaching him that. Right. He's just and, learning that. Right. Algebra, right. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying is that the skill sets have evolved. Um, the requirements have evolved and the system needs to evolve with it. That's excellent. So let me take you to our final question because we can talk all day. And boy, this is true. This has been um, very insightful and certainly preparing us, Nick, for what you will uh, reveal, uh, hopefully the new value equation <laughs> at the summit on October 28th. <laughs> um, so think about that. I'm putting that on you, Nick. That's uh, right. I got, I got you covered. Okay. Well, I appreciate that because just so you know, uh, Dr. Jack Cox, he's going to actually be part of day one of healthcare in the age of personalization. And he's going to help push what he believes is the new value equation for healthcare. Wow. So uh, really looking forward to how all these things start converging. Right. So here, here's the last question for you, Nick. Yep. I mean, it's clear that what we discussed is there's a lot of layers to it, but it all, it takes us back to the one thing that makes everyone nervous. Um, it's hard to predict the future. <laughs> so how should leaders approach and create strategies for their organization's future when the future is so unpredictable? Yeah, that's great. I, you know, I, I have to say, in, when I was um, a young lad with hair in 2003, I embarked on a um, futures project. Okay, so let me just explain. And I think, honestly, the fact that I got so much out of it. I feel like organizations should do similar types of things, right? So what we basically did was 
we got together a lot of experts so deep in their areas, okay, that they're able to look laterally. They're so good in their particular niche. Uh, you know, we had carbon credit traders back then. We had cultural anthropologists. We had nanotechnology specialists. We had nutritionists, nurses, doctors, um, psychologists. I mean, we had about 30 people that really were so deep-rooted in their level of expertise that they're able to apply it to other disciplines, okay? Because mm. they knew it so well, and they knew how it would impact other things, other disciplines. And we had summits with these folks, and we did certain exercises. We worked with a company called the Sterling Rice Group to help us out with it. And man, what a phenomenal experience it was. So, Glenn, the simple answer is I believe I've been able to be much better about thinking about where things are headed because of that process I went through. Hmm. That, and and, and what, what was the process, really? I mean, I'm talking about this like fancy futures work. The reality is you just get a bunch of smart people in one room and talk just like we're doing right now. Okay. Take what we're doing, multiply it by 10 in one room for three days and amazing things will happen. And that's what corporations need to do. They need to get with other disciplines and organizations and listen to them and understand how their interactions with different, completely disparate disciplines, right? Like what does nanotechnology have to do with food and beverage, right? Well, nanotechnology has a lot to do with food and beverage because in the future, the particles will be so small and you can put it into a food or beverage and maybe it can attack cancer cells directly in the future. Okay. I mean, these are the types of things that I think people have to talk about, even if it's kind of theoretical and high in the sky, it at least provides a framework in how we should be thinking about the future in a very uncertain world. I'll tell you another thing. So in, um, Three years ago, I gave a presentation to a board of directors of one of my companies. And I said, listen, you know, black swan events are happening more and more and more. Okay. Um, they're happening in the climate. They're happening in, in healthcare. They're happening in society, civil unrest, all this kind of stuff. This was three years ago. Hmm. You should have, uh, I believe that there should be a new management position created that has board level connectivity. And this person's sole responsibility is to think about all these possible issues and threats and how the company will be positioned to respond and what needs to happen, right? And think about all the stuff that's occurred since that three years. Boy, wouldn't it have been nice to have someone three years ago tell us like, hey, we have a health pandemic and they shut the economy down and I, I'm a packaged food company. Like, this is how we need to make sure our supply chain is ready to meet all that demand because people can't go out to eat. So it creates a framework. It doesn't mean you're going to have the answer like, oh, I see a pandemic coming in 2020. No, that's really not the way to think about it. The way to think about it is how to create a framework to assess potential threats and opportunities, and then how would we respond? That's how you plan for an uncertain future. Why didn't we do this? Does this go back to uh, leading environments that have been indelibly steeped in standardization for 70 or 80 years? I mean, maybe. <laughs> to, to the best of my knowledge, I'm, I think we've done this study twice. We did one in 2003, and we did one in 2016 or 17, 2017. And I don't know of any other investment bank that has done it. 
to that to that scale. And I don't know many other corporations that have done it to that degree. Hmm. But it's just you get a bunch of smart people. I mean, look, the healthcare industry, the education industry, the finance, all these industries should have coalitions where it's cross discipline and they get together for a summit and they talk. It's not Davos. I mean, we're talking real stuff at the micro level, not the big picture. One, uh, one thought I'm going to throw to you, uh, Nick, is you create these amazing think groups and, and, and like minds to, to work through this stuff as you, uh, as you do your own forecasting. Um, just from a point of view of a guy that works with people that, you know, families of around 11 is the household size uh, in a small village where average incomes under $1,000 total for the year. They eat what they grow. Um, one thing that we found in plant breeding, international plant breeding, and some of the hardest uh, fields, the hardest growing conditions anywhere in the world, um, is that when we did leave it to just the smart people in the room or the people that we certified as smart, um, what we found is complete failure with an, lack, with an adoption rate of a, no more than 5% of the seeds that we were producing for these difficult environments, right? And what changed that was when we realized that some of the smartest people in the world or room weren't in the room. And those were the actual farmers that didn't even have maybe even an ability to write their own name in a language that you and I recognize. Hmm. What we found is we found ways to communicate and to stop thinking of the scientist as the solution and the, the, uh, the farmer as the, the, the essentially the receiver of the solution. But in fact, we switched it around and realized that it was the, the solution was right there with the farmers all along. It's just we hadn't been using science in a way that was smart enough to meet the majority population of the world, as opposed to a few folks that want to put some vegetables into to bring it full circle to a can of Campbell's soup. And so uh, right. <laughs> with that, yeah. I'm, I'm going to wrap up my points real quick, uh, but with just one, uh, one observation and just one, just um, I think it's more of an admiration and observation. And that is, Nick, dude, you are a cultural anthropologist. You got <laughs> And just like the farmers didn't need to go to the Sorbonne or somewhere else to learn plant breeding and how to put food on their plates, you didn't have to go to a university to get your anthropology. You had it to begin with, and so you are an expert. So I want you to start talking about, yeah, as a cultural anthropologist, but from an anthro person to an anthro person, that one bit of advice, don't leave it with just culture. Because if we just stick to the cultural frameworks and the cultural analysis of what's going on now and possibly into the future, right? What we're going to lose out on is the fact that a lot of culture has major biological uh, influences. And it's not saying the culture is biologically determined, but this is a chicken and an egg thing. We're never going to find that one does the other. But if we pretend that one supersedes the other, we're just going to be going around in a loop. So you remember that as an anthropologist, you do do culture, but the reason why your cultural framework might be a little bit stronger is because you know that we also have to bring in not just biology, but language itself. And with yes. that, my dear anthropological brother, anytime <laughs> you want to chat some anthro, biological, linguistic, or, or even cultural, let alone archaeology, you, you got my number, man. You being All right, awesome. Thank you, Scott. Right. I appreciate it. Well, hey, Scott, I think you and Nick, you know, God willing, we have Nick there live on stage. Uh, you guys can uh, uh, ramble a bit about this. What do you think? <laughs> I mean, I've got lots of notes about things that I want to hear Nick talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds really good. Well, Nick, hey, listen, thanks so much for your time. Uh, always a pleasure. Um, you really enlighten us, Nick. And as your friend, I really appreciate who you are and what you bring to the table. It is 
people need to hear this message and they're going to have a chance to. And again, we welcome our uh, listeners and viewers uh, to check out 2020summit.ageofpersonalization.com. Learn more about Nick and all of our uh, speakers that will help us kind of break down what it means when we talk about standardization versus personalization, uh, but why standardization has finally lost its battle uh, because they didn't understand the needs of personalization when the moment called. So on that note, when you lead in the age of personalization, you will see things that others don't, do what others won't, and keep pushing when prudence says quit. Thanks so much, Nick. We greatly appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Glenn. Appreciate it. Have a Thanks for listening to Personalization Outbreak. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. If you enjoyed the content, visit ageofpersonalization.com to check out our free streaming video series and learn how to get involved in the movement. I'm Glenn Yopis. I wish you a good day. And remember, without strategy, change is merely substitution, not evolution.